pray together. Father, we just come into your presence right now. Lord, we're hungry for your word. We're hungry for your wisdom. We're hungry, Lord, to grow spiritually in the things of God. And so we ask tonight that you will speak to our hearts, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand the spiritual things of God. We thank you for it. Can you breathe a prayer, dear church, and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive the word engrafted into my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to say a couple of things that can't go on radio. So I don't know what to do, but I'm just giving you a heads up. All things are possible with God. Now, I'm making a little bit of fun now. My dear friend, Tony King. Raise your hand, Tony. He's been my friend in Christ for 25 years, and I've been honored to be his pastor. But he, he had a retirement party recently. Now, Tony was always suit, tie, shiny shoes, business, city slicker. But in his retirement party, he was given a pickup truck. Now, so I said to him that night, I said, Tony, you can't have a pickup truck without having cowboy boots. You got to get boots. And so tonight I look, and he has totally converted to Fort Worth. <laughs> because he, he came driving up in a pickup truck with cowboy boots on. Nothing is impossible. Sorry, Tony, I had to do that. That's like Brendan losing his tennis shoes. He doesn't have tennis shoes anymore. What's happening to people around here? And I want to say quickly, if you come to the 9 o'clock service Sunday, I'm going to give you an extra cup of coffee. Because spring forward, 9 o'clock is like, hello, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because people are waking up going, oh, my gosh. So if you come to the 9 o'clock, we're, we're gonna, you're going to get an extra star in heaven. Okay? Spring forward. Set your clocks. Now, tonight, I'm going to deal with tough questions, tougher answers, and I'm going to deal with two hot-button questions that if you've been in the Lord very long, you can be seated, I'm sorry, if you've been in the Lord very long, then you've been asked these questions, and you may have thought them yourself, and so I want to deal with these two questions. How can God send people to hell who have never heard the gospel? Anybody want to teach that in my place? How can God send people to hell who have never heard the gospel? And why is the Old Testament God so mean and seemingly unfair? Now, I choose these questions because I know that these are the questions that either you think about or that you are asked by people who are skeptical about Christianity or about the Bible. And so I, I, I like clearing out cobwebs in people's minds and hearts regarding understanding the Bible. Now, next week, I want to deal, one of the questions I want to deal with is, which is, what are the best Bible translations? I want to deal with that one. And I'm going to deal with King James only. I'm going to deal with that. And if there's anybody left the next week, <laughs> no, I, I'm, um, I want to deal with issues that are out there all the time, because these days, you can't just tell people Jesus loves you and they, and they, Say, okay, well, I'll get saved. They have questions. 
And I want you to be able to answer them. And I want, and, and you can't answer them if you haven't gotten answers yourself. So we're going to get into the Bible tonight. How can God send people to hell who have never heard the gospel? How many have been ever been asked that question? Anybody? How many have ever wondered it yourself? Tell the truth. Okay. A lot of you. All right. It's a great question, and it's very relevant, because it has to do with the fairness and the justice of God. Now, first of all, I want us to review what the Bible says about the character of God. It says, first of all, that the God of the Bible is fair and just. Abraham said to God, right before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he asked God a question. It was a rhetorical question. He he knew the answer when he asked the question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, God, I know you, and I know that you will always do what is right. See, folks, it matters what we believe about God. It matters big time what you believe about God. All kinds of things hinge on what you believe about God. You're not going to have confidence in prayer, for instance, if you don't believe that God is a prayer-answering God. Or how can you ask God to provide for you if you don't believe he's a providing God? Or how can you ask God to heal you if you don't believe he's a healing God? Amen? Amen. Or how about a delivering God? How can you ask God to set you free from something that has you bound if you don't believe that God either delivers or has the power to deliver? So it matters a whole bunch what we believe about God. See, that was Satan's tactic with Eve in the garden. He immediately attacked the character of God. He told Eve, God's holding back from you, Eve. God's lying to you. You won't die if you eat of this tree. God lied to you. He was calling God a liar. He attacked the character of God. And when Eve believed the lie about the character of God, her fall was imminent. So he's fair and just. The Bible says he is also love. He didn't just love, he is love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Aren't you glad for that? He is love. He's holy. 1 Peter 1, 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So the God that called us is holy. And that's going to matter in a minute as we move along. He is perfect. God doesn't have any flaws. He doesn't have any mistakes. He's perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right? He never changes. Aren't you glad God never changes? God never changes. He is perfect, and he never changes. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And James said in him, there is no variableness, neither shadow of change. God doesn't change. He's merciful. The Bible says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. God is a God of mercy. He is merciful. Aren't you glad for that? Now, just take those attributes. Let me just go over them. Love, he's, he is fair, he is love, he is holy, he is perfect, he never changes, and he's merciful. So based on those alone, how many of you believe he'll do the right thing? And that he's fair. Now, 
these passages should be enough to assure us that God will always do what is right and just with all people everywhere. And I'm going over this to set up the whole question, how can God send somebody to hell who has never heard the gospel? Well, we know he's going to do what's right. We know he's going to do what's just. So let's move on. What about those who never hear the gospel? What is going to happen to them? Will they go to hell? People are amazed when I share my testimony and and tell them, I never heard the gospel until I was 16 and sitting in juvenile home. I never heard it. I never heard John 3.16 until I was in juvenile home and a Baptist preacher came into where I was and preached the gospel to about 50 of us. Then I heard the gospel, but until then I never heard it. Would I have gone to hell if I had died before hearing it? Oh, I would have made a fast track to hell. But now let's go on. We need to remember that people don't go to hell for rejecting the gospel. They go to hell for their sin. People don't go to hell for rejecting the gospel. They go to hell for their sin. Paul makes this clear in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1 is so profound. Now I want you to look at what verse 18 is telling us. It's telling us that God's wrath is revealed against what? People who reject the gospel? No. It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's wrath is against sin. Always. And people will go to hell because of sin, not rejecting the gospel. God's wrath here is focused on the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. At their sin. Not at rejecting the gospel. The whole reason we have a gospel is due to the sin of mankind. If we didn't have sin, if we weren't sinful, we didn't need a savior. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when anybody goes to hell, it will be because of sin not repented of. Not for rejecting the gospel. Now it goes further to inform us that all sinners possess a level of truth. Now I want you to catch this. Please catch this. This is so important. Because look what he says. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, what everybody, read it with me, the truth in unrighteousness. Well, how can they have truth if they haven't heard the gospel? According to the Bible, it's not that men don't know the truth about God. They know it and they suppress it. They push it down and they try to avoid it. They know the truth. See, Paul goes on to tell us that God has unfolded the knowledge of himself to every single human being on earth by the things he has made. See, I don't believe in atheists. Atheists don't believe in God. I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe there's a genuine atheist on earth. How do you say that, Jeff? Because there's people who say they don't believe in God. Because my Bible tells me, listen to verse 19. What may be known of God is manifest in them. That means everybody. What may be known of God is manifest in them. Read the next six words or seven words with me. For God has shown it to them. 
What has he shown to them? That he is. There is not a person on earth, I don't care who it is, I don't care if it's Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, these well-known atheists of our time. They can go on all day saying they don't believe in God, but my Bible tells me God has shown it to them. Now, let God be true and every man a liar. God has shown it to them. There's not a person on earth that God does not at one time or another speak to and reveal himself to. God has shown it to them. Now, let me talk to you about two different kinds of revelation. Two different kinds of revelation come to men or are are given to men, general and special. Now, general revelation speaks of how God has revealed himself in creation for all to see. That's the revelation he's talking about in verse 19. God has shown it to them. General revelation is you have this incredible creation, the stars, the moon, the sun, the trees, the grass, the oceans, all living things. You have this incredible, undeniable, irrefutable, spectacular creation all around us. And God talks through it. And it says God has revealed his reality in them, to them, by what he has made. All of them. Everybody. And then there's special revelation. Special revelation is called special because it's not given to all people in all places. At certain times throughout biblical history, God chose to reveal himself by miraculous means. Special revelation included, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see physical appearances of God, like when he appeared to Abraham and walked right up to his tent before he went to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. That was God revealing himself. That was a special revelation. (laughs) Dreams, visions, angels, the prophets, the written word of God, and most importantly, Jesus Christ. All right? So general revelation is what verse 19 to 20 in Romans 1 is talking about. God has revealed himself to all mankind by the things he made. You know, this happened to my dad. I witnessed to my dad about Christ for years. And he didn't hear me. He didn't hear the gospel. He just did not respond. And then, one day, I was sitting at the table, I'll never forget it, and I was eating some cereal and, uh, you know, just starting my day. My dad had been out back. And my dad came walking in out of the blue. And my dad says, he says, you know, Jeff, There is no way that out there just happened. (laughs) I said, Dad, what do you think I've been trying to tell you all these years? And he said, no, I was watching a squirrel in the tree. And it occurred to me, there is no way that that came from evolution. Well, what happened to my dad? God spoke to him through general revelation, through the things he made. Now, a few years later, I was able to actually lead him in a prayer of repentance to receive Christ as his Savior. But how did it start? It started, and this is important to what I want to teach you tonight, it started with general revelation. God God nudged my dad and opened his eyes and said, guess what? No way that just happened. Amen? There's no way that just happened. Evolution, if you stop and think about it, is ridiculously absurd. 
No, seriously. I know you're raised in it. And I know a lot of seemingly intelligent people believe it. And I'm not making fun of them. Because God's got to talk to you and deliver you from that nonsense. But general revelation is all about God speaks to people through the things he made. And he speaks to every person. Showing them that he's real. And the thought that all of this just came about by chance and endless stretches of time is ridiculous. It is absurd. It is preposterous. It's crazy. Do you get my drift? I guess you think I, you understand that I don't agree with evolution. Because I am fearfully, wonderfully made, not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. And so are you. But special revelation, we see in the Bible you've got in your hand, that's special revelation. The Bible says that even though God spoke by the prophets in other ways to them in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, Hebrews 1 tells us, now in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And it's special revelation. So general revelation, God reveals himself to all mankind by the things he made. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that, what does it say? They are without excuse. I don't care who you are. You are without excuse. When you step into eternity, you will have to answer for how God spoke to you by general revelation. Even if you never hear the gospel. They are without excuse. So first it says the knowledge of God is manifest in all people on the inside of them. It says, what may be known of God is manifest in them. Folks, there is an instinctual knowledge of the reality of God within every human being. Ecclesiastes says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Listen to these words. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Every single human being alive has eternity in their heart. There is a sense of the knowledge and the reality of God. There is no getting around it. God is. Amen? Here's the deal. Yet sinful people and their desire to live in sin suppress that truth. When God talks to them through general revelation, they suppress that truth. They come up with theories like evolution. What is evolution? It is suppressing the truth of God. That's what it is. Evolution is suppressing the truth of God. This is why Jesus said one day, their sentence, talking about the future judgment of mankind, the human race, Their sentence, their judgment is based on this fact, that the light from heaven came into the world, and that light was Jesus, but they loved the darkness more than the light, for their deeds were evil. Why do they suppress the truth of general revelation? Because they want to walk in darkness and they want to sin. And so loving sin, choosing darkness over light, they suppress the truth that God brings to them through general revelation. No, 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 God didn't make this. It it came about from a single-celled amoeba that crawled out of a primordial sea quadrillions of years ago, and all of life came from that, suppressing the truth. So no matter who it is or where they live, from the crowded streets of New York City to the remotest jungles of Africa, God has revealed himself to every person's heart 
But sinful man chooses the darkness of sin over the light. Didn't you do that? I did that. Oh, yeah. There was a while I didn't want to give in to God. And thank God he chased me down. Thank God he cornered me. Thank God he applied the pressure. Thank God he got me in a headlock. Thank God he didn't give up on me. Because I all the time was suppressing the conviction, suppressing his voice, suppressing his nudges, suppressing the truth. But he just stayed with me. Thank God. How many of you are glad for that? Amen. Amen? So the scriptures suggest that those who never hear the gospel will be judged for not responding to what they did know. You see, the Bible reveals that if you respond to general revelation, to the light that you do have, if you respond to the light that you do have, God will get the special revelation of Jesus Christ to you. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe it with all my heart. There are many examples in the Bible. Let me give you an example, a couple of examples of how somebody had some light and they responded to that light and God brought them the ultimate special revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, We see Cornelius in the book of Acts, who was a Gentile that did not know about Jesus. Yet the Bible says that Cornelius was a devout man. He was one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So we would look at Cornelius and say, now that's a good man. But guess what? He wasn't saved. He didn't know Jesus. He knew nothing of Jesus. We see that he responded in faith to the light that he did have. And that was primarily the Old Testament knowledge of God. That's the light that he had. So he took the light that he had, and he responded to the light that he had. And he went into fasting and praying and asking God to reveal truth to him. And God saw to it that Cornelius heard the gospel of Christ by sending Peter himself. The great, I mean, this was, he sent the creme de la creme, Simon Peter himself, to Cornelius' house to tell him about the special revelation of Jesus Christ. And Cornelius and his whole household was saved. See, I believe, folks, when you're lost, but you've got limited light. You say, wow, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more than what I see. There's got to be a higher truth, whatever it is. And you say, God, if you're there, help me. I want to tell you what God will do. He will move heaven and earth to get to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'll get it to you. He will get it to you. And he got it to Cornelius. Now, in another example, we find the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, also in the book of Acts. And you know the story. Uh, Philip was preaching a great revival in Samaria. It was an incredible revival. Uh, A whole city was being completely transformed and overthrown in a good way by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right in the middle of a red-hot revival, the Holy Ghost says to Philip, I want you to go towards the wilderness. And he starts walking to the wilderness. And as he goes into the wilderness where the Holy Ghost led him, He sees a chariot, and in the chariot is a eunuch of high authority under a queen, um, Candace. And he was going back home after having been on some travels, and he had the Old Testament scriptures open, and he was reading out of the book of Isaiah. 
and he, he just happened to be reading about the Messiah. And it says he was reading, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now here's this eunuch, he's reading, and he's thinking, what does this mean? And don't you know, he prayed. And he said, God, what does this mean? I don't understand what this means. Now here's Philip in the middle of a red-hot revival, and God cared enough to move on Philip and speak to him. And he said, I want you to go into the wilderness. And when he goes in the wilderness, he sees the chariot. And when he sees the chariot, the Holy Ghost says, join yourself to that chariot. He jumps up onto the, the chariot, and he sees that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading about his Jesus. And the eunuch says to him, what does this mean? Well, that's like handing a starving man a Big Mac. To ask a preacher, what does this mean in Isaiah? And just asked him, basically, explain Jesus to me. And he explained the Lord to him. And this Ethiopian eunuch, you know the rest of the story. He, he repented. He was saved. Philip took him down into the, the water and baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Holy Ghost snatched Philip away and his feet landed in another city, and he kept right on preaching. But I want you to notice something, church. This is important. The, the Ethiopian eunuch had general revelation. He had limited light, but when he responded, based on the light that he had, what did God do? God got the gospel to him. Say with me, God got the gospel to him. See, see God, God will get to you. If you are serious, if you're a serious seeker, God knows where you live. He knows your address. He knows your zip code. He knows where you work. He, he, he knows you. And he knows who he can send to you. And he will get the gospel to you. Amen? He will get it to you. Now, here's the sad fact. The majority of the human race don't do this. When, when they realize that God exists by general revelation, they look out there and they say, Somebody had to have created this. God had to have done this. And they realize it, but they don't respond to it. Instead, as Jesus said, they choose darkness over light. And they suppress the truth. And they remain in their sin. So Paul goes on in Romans 1 to spell the sad tale of most of mankind. He says in verse 21, Because although they knew God, how they know him? By general revelation. They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And that's what happens when you resist the light that you do have. Now, let me ask you a question. What's going on in America right now? now is it, have you thought of that while I've gone over this? How, how our nation... See, I believe the more a person goes into sin... Or the more a nation goes into sin, the more active you will see them trying to suppress truth. Okay? Now look what's happening in our nation. We kicked God out of the schools. We took prayer out. We took the Bible out. We have kicked Jesus out of the public square. We have kicked God out of the sports arena. You know, you can go out there and say anything. You can curse the flag. You can refuse to sing the anthem. Or stand for the anthem. You, you, can, you can wear anything out of that field. You can, you can go out there standing for anything you want. But if you go out there and stand for Jesus Christ, you're going to catch it. Ask Tim Tebow. Why? 
Because as soon as light shines, sinful hearts want to suppress it. That's why the persecution is growing. Because the more people go into darkness and suppress truth, the more they hate anybody who shines. So you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So if you decide you're going to walk with God and you're going to shine the way you're supposed to shine, get ready. You're going to catch it in a culture that is actively suppressing the truth. But that's all right because they're still being saved. We're seeing them saved every single week in church. They're still being saved, still repenting, and they're hungry and thirsty for the word of God. So I'm not afraid of what men think. I'm afraid of what he thinks. Amen? And I just love seeing people get saved. I wish you could see what I see, because every Sunday I see people down on this altar, and they're looking at me like, I had no idea when I got up this morning and decided to come to church, I was going to be in an altar looking at you, giving my heart to Jesus Christ. But see, God the Holy Ghost was after them. I love the, expression, the description of Jesus where he's called the hound of heaven, the great hound of heaven, because he's constantly seeking to save that which was lost. Amen. Now, the second question, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean and seemingly unfair? Man, I've, I've been asked that by so many people. And, and here's the deal. I understand the question. I do. Especially if you don't know the Bible well and you happen to read some of the Old Testament accounts of God's judgments. Because they seem mean and they seem unfair and they seem really harsh. For instance, we read of his command to Israel to wipe out... Whole cities, including the women and children of pagan nations, as they are making their way in their conquest of the promised land, of Canaan. They're told to wipe out whole cities. There are are people all over America and all over the world that stumble over that. Now, I'm going to explain it in just a minute. We read of really tough laws, like this one. If you curse your parents, you should be stoned to death. I didn't say if you tried to kill them. I said if you curse them. The Old Testament said you as a teenager, you as a child are to be stoned to death. Man, if that was true today, we wouldn't have any teenagers in youth group. (laughs) And I would have been killed a long time ago. Right? (laughs) Thank God for Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. But that's there. And people read that, and they say, look at that Old Testament God. He's so mean. He's so harsh. He's so unfair. Or if you committed adultery, you were to be stoned to death. Or if you bowed down to a false idol, one of these little figurines, you know, made of wood or stone. If you bowed down to it and worshiped that idol, you were to be stoned to death. Think about that. The Old Testament God to the unregenerate and unrenewed mind seems very unfair and very harsh. And people use the Old Testament God to attack Christianity all the time and to attack the Bible. You tell me you believe the Bible is the word of God and you believe in the God of the Bible, then you believe in the God and you love the God who did that to people, who treated people that way. I've been told that. Probably nobody expresses their distaste for the God of the Old Testament more vociferously than militant atheist Richard Dawkins. And I'm just going to read something he wrote. Doesn't bother me, I'll read it to you. He wrote this, the God of the Old Testament. 
is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice he calls it fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I don't think he likes the God of the Old Testament. I want to add to that, perhaps nobody on earth is more ignorant of the truth of the God of the Bible than his atheist Richard Dawkins. Yeah. Because right there, in, in that wonderful, highly pleasant statement of his about God, uh, he, he revealed massive ignorance about the Bible. The fact is, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same, everybody. They're one and the same. The God of the Old Testament is anything but the relentlessly bad-tempered taskmaster people like Dawkins make him out to be. The Old Testament scriptures are forever describing God as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. That's what the Old Testament says about the Old Testament God. They refer to him as a God who has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punish us according to our iniquities. Thank God. That's what David said in Psalms 103 and Moses in Exodus 34. As a matter of fact, all of the biblical authors agree that God's love and God's judgment are actually two sides of the same coin. And if you walk out of here understanding anything, please get that. We're seeing the same God different sides of the same God in the two testaments. Think of this. Fire can burn, and fire can also provide warmth and comfort. It all depends on where you stand in relationship to the flame. You're either in it being roasted, or you're near it being warmed. God is both. And it hinges on what is your relationship to him. First, the God of the Old Testament is revealed in relation to his revulsion to sin and anger toward it. That's what we see with the God of the Old Testament. His unvarnished, unfiltered, full-on response to sin and its dire consequences is revealed in all of its terrible fullness in the Old Testament. You want to know how bad sin is? Look at the God of the Old Testament and how he responds to it. We need to see it because we need to see the awfulness of of sin. The fact is that sin deserves death, and God's response to it in the Old Testament confirms this over and over. That's why he could say a young person who curses his parents has committed a sin that is worthy of death as much as somebody who kills another. Because sin is sin, and sin brings death. Now, we don't like to hear that in a politically correct culture, but I hate PC, and if you've been here long at all, you know that I hate it because PC makes you lie. PC makes you deny the truth. The fact is that God is holy, and we are not. The way he views sin is not the way we view sin. We marginalize sin, cover it up. We make light of it. 
And we even revel in sin. But God, on the other hand, look at the God of the Old Testament. Here's what you see. He's revolted by sin. He maximizes its consequences. He exposes the gravity of it. And he must respond to it with judgment. Every sin, folks, happening in the world right now, every sin is going to meet one of two fates. It's either going to be judged by God at the judgment or it's going to be wiped away by the blood of Jesus. That's the only two things that will happen to every sin happening in the world right now. The murder, the adultery, the fornication, the theft, the lying, everything happening all over the planet. Every, the smallest sin is going to have to meet the judgment of God or the blood of Jesus. The prophet Ezekiel states, the soul that sins, it shall die. And God's judgment of sin in the Old Testament affirms this repeatedly. That's why you see judgment breaking out all the time. Because God judges sin. How many of you understand that? Raise your hand if you get that tonight. God judges sin. So that when you and I sin, listen, it doesn't take away your salvation if you're a born-again child of God, but it does take away your relationship. When a born-again child of God sins, they don't lose their soul. They lose their, t- their relationship with God until they repent. And that's why I tell you all the time, keep short accounts with God. When you sin, not if, because we're all going to mess up. Today, all of us thought something, said something, did something, or copped some attitude that grieved God. I mean, I repent every morning. Amen? I mean, and I repent at night a lot, too. I mean, I repent throughout the day. I'm a repenting guy. Because you know why? I want a clean channel between me and God. All right? So I repent all the time. Because I know that sin has to be answered by judgment or by the blood. He's also merciful to the max in the Old Testament. The Old Testament God. Let me give you a a for instance. When we read of the cities that God ordered his people to destroy in Canaan, We fail to take into account that God had given them over 400 years to repent. Now, when you read your Old Testament and you see God commanding the children of Israel to take out whole cities, not just the men, but the women and children and the animals, see, that only happened in the conquest of Canaan. That's the only time God told them to do that. And and we need to realize that when God finally told his people who had been delivered of Egypt, from Egypt, and they were making their way into the promised land, when he told them to wipe out these cities, those cities had been given four centuries to repent. One of the nations in the promised land God ordered his people to destroy was the Amorites. In Genesis 15, 13, God says to Abraham, listen to this carefully, your descendants, Abraham, will be strangers in a strange land that is not theirs. There he's talking about Egypt. He's talking about all those centuries they would spend in Egypt. They spent 400 years in Egypt. When Joseph was taken down there as a slave, and his brothers later followed, along with Daddy Jacob, and they settled there, and they flourished there, and they grew there, and they finally ended up in slavery in Egypt, they were there for 400 years. And then God says to Abraham, in the fourth generation, 
They shall return here. What's here? The promised land. For the iniquity, look at this carefully, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What is God saying there? Oh, we got to catch this tonight. we got to catch this. God is saying, you know what? I don't judge instantly. I give people time to repent. And sometimes I give them a long time to repent. And when I'm dealing with nations, I sometimes give them centuries to repent. God says to Abraham, I'm going to leave your descendants, the children of Israel, in Egypt for a long time. And while they're in Egypt, I'm going to be working on the Amorites. I'm going to be giving the Amorites time to repent. Centuries to repent. And I'm going to try, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to give them time. Now look what God says. But their iniquity is going to come to a point like a ripe fruit. And you reach a level, folks. An individual does this, and and nations do this. Think of America when I say this. When your sin reaches the, the point of ripeness, ripe for judgment. When God knows you're never going to turn. God knows you're never going to repent. God knows you're never, ever going to get right. He gave you one 100 years, two 100 years, three one, 400 years while his own people are languishing in slavery in Egypt. But when they come out, they're going to come out as the executors of the will of God. And they're going to be my instruments to bring judgment on the Amorites. But it's not unfair and it's not unjust because I gave them 400 years. Y'all see what I'm saying? The return of Israel to the promised land from Egypt corresponded with the completion of the iniquity of the Amorites. Now, I don't know about you, but, but this happens inside of me sometimes. I say, God, how come you're not judging, for instance, the abortion industry? How come you're not doing something in America, judging America somehow or another, where everybody gets it? This judgment is falling because of the murder of millions of children. I don't get it. If I was God, I'd zap them a long time ago. Right? Come on, everybody. How many of you are glad you don't have zap power? And and, and shouldn't people around you be glad you don't have zap power? Don't look at your spouse. Look at me. But isn't it good we don't have zap power like the disciples wanted when, when that one town rejected Jesus and they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? Thank God Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. Because they, you get zap power or fire power, there's a whole lot of ashes all around. But see, God waited and God waited and God waited. Now let me ask you, did an unfair, unjust God wait? Uh-uh. If he'd have been unfair and unjust, the day they sinned, he would have zapped them. He would have judged them. But he didn't. Look at the long-suffering of God. And I believe that right now, God is suffering long with America. I believe he's suffering long with the other nations of the world. I believe our God is a long-suffering God. And when judgment finally falls, hey, guess what? 
It's just and it's fair and it's right. Amen? God was in fact long-suffering and endured the idolatry and sins of the nations for centuries. Look what it says God did. Gave them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. What did God do while they sinned? He was good to them. What did Jesus say? He said, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And God sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. Why does he do it? Hoping that the goodness of God will lead us to repentance. So if you're living in sin tonight and nothing bad is happening to you, in fact, it seems like you're being blessed, don't let that deceive you. It might be the goodness of God leading you to repentance. Amen? The incredibly good news is that when Jesus hung on the cross and died for our sins, catch this, everybody, he died in our place, and he took our judgment. God was essentially creating a firewall between his wrath against sin and the whole human race. Amen? So if you turn to Jesus for salvation, the wrath of God that we see manifested all the time in the Old Testament will never fall on you for your sin because your sin is wiped away by the blood of Jesus. In, in, the, in the 1800s, in, in the uh, wilderness days, in the cowboy days, in the, the um, stagecoach days, when everybody lived out in the, in the country or on some land, um, when a fire started, and it started to move through a field, for instance, and the fire was headed to their house, and it would have burned them up, the fire destroying everything. What they would go and do is they would quickly go and start their own fire in a a limited area. And it would burn a limited area. And they would see the fire coming across the prairie, coming across their fields towards them, but they had already burned a place that was already consumed by fire. And they would stand in the middle of it. And when the fire started coming to them, when it got to the place that it already burned, it couldn't go any further. And they were safe. The cross is where the fire already burned. You get it? The cross is where the fire already burned. So, so here's the wrath of God. It says God's, God's angry with the wicked every day. It says his wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the wrath of God is being poured out all the time. People are being judged all the time, experiencing the consequences of sin all the time. So the wise person will run to that cross because when Jesus hung on the cross, the fire of God's wrath fell on him for you and me. The fire of God's wrath fell on him. And Jesus took the wrath for us. He took our punishment. He he took our judgment. And and at the cross, the fire has already burned. So though the fire of judgment is raging all around you, you stand at the foot of that cross, and the fire can't get to you. And on the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, oh, thank God, it's not going to be our name. It's not going to be our pedigree. It's not going to be our looks. It's not going to be our charisma. It's not going to be our college degrees. It's not going to be whatever good person we were on earth. There's going to be one thing that's going to keep the wrath of God off of us, standing at the foot of that cross. Jesus 
is my redeemer. His blood has covered my sin. And the, the fire of judgment will not touch you. Amen? So the two questions, how does God send people who have never heard the gospel to hell? Rejecting the gospel doesn't send you to hell. Your sin sends you to hell. And if you don't respond to general revelation and look up and say, speak to me, God. How many times have we read of Muslims, for instance, around the world in, in nations that reject Christianity and outlaw Christianity? who have visions of Jesus, visions of the cross. Jesus somehow gets to them and brings them the truth. If you respond to that revelation, God will send the gospel to you or you can be saved. And God in the Old Testament is not a bad God. He's a just and a long-suffering God. Amen? I have a few minutes to take two or three questions. I should have said that at the beginning because now you're thinking, oh, no, what do I want to ask him? But you have as long as it takes for Aaron to grab the mic and look your way. But I like to uh, answer questions, if I possibly can. I'm not a walking encyclopedia. I know a little bit, but I don't, don't know everything, but I'll try. Way back there, Aaron, is, is somebody. And please make them theological. Don't ask me about my dogs. Make them theological. Theological questions, and I'll do my best. Thank you very much, sir. Um, in the, in the uh, Psalms, I believe, David says uh, to the Lord um, that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. And, and if God has made all of us in a fearfully and wonderful way, even the children of the Canaanites, who were children who had no ability to know that there was a God, why were those children slaughtered? Well, number one, they would have been completely orphaned. Number two, they were already taught in the paganism that caused their parents to come under judgment. So my best shot at that would be God sees the future. And these children were raised in deep, really dark paganism where they burned their children in the fire unto Molech, all kinds of horrible things. So God knowing the future, that they would be without parents, they would have all been orphaned, and they had already been taught the ways of this terrible idolatry. It was the mercy of God because of the age of accountability, and I believe that it's very possible they did not go to hell, but they were taken before they would have consciously gone against God. So... Okay, Pastor, this has been bothering me. Um, the Bible teaches us about Solomon. He was the wisest man that right. ever lived on this earth. So my question is, if he was the wisest man, did he repent towards the end of his life? Because he had hundreds of wives and hundreds of girlfriends. And he <laughs> fell. I never had it put that way. Well, yeah, right. he, but he fell prey to, you know, offering to he their did. gods. And that was his weakness, was yes. the, the women mm-hmm. that he loved. But towards the end, if he was the wisest man and God is who he is, what is your answer? Ecclesiastes suggests, when you get around the 12th chapter, uh, towards the end of Ecclesiastes, it, it suggests 
by his own words that he has turned back because he's counseling young men, for instance, to walk with God. Uh, Solomon stands, in my opinion, as probably the greatest example of what wrong relationships can do to you because he was the wisest man, but God had told him, have nothing to do with pagan women. He didn't listen, and he gathered, as the sister said, he gathered hundreds. Why anybody would want hundreds of wives, I'll never know. Because just one is enough to handle. Come on, man, say amen. I don't want to get you in trouble. But he had hundreds. And then he had hundreds of concubines. But these women were pagan. And and this kind of goes to what this uh, man back here asked. Because the women were pagan, they were even able to seduce the wisest man. Not only into sexual sin, but into walking away from God. Because he did. What's really hard to believe is he got so low that he actually built the altars where children would be burned alive to Molech. Solomon went that far down. Now, if you had ever said to Solomon when he was young and he was walking with God, hey, the day is going to come when you're going to build altars for children to be burned alive to a false god. He would have said, you're insane. But see, wrong relationships are very incremental. And they take you down in stages where you wind up doing things, believing things, embracing things. You never, ever would have believed you would. That's the power of a wrong relationship. So I do believe he turned in his latter days because of, read Ecclesiastes 12. And it's very biographical. And uh, he, it seems to me he has turned back by then. Okay, Pastor. Uh, we know that when we die, we go to heaven and we have a, a new body. Okay, what happened if you are a widow and you remarried? So who will be your wife? Do you will know your wife, both wives? So how the situation will... <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I get it. Now, Jesus was asked that same question by the Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection. So Jesus said to the Sadducees, you don't understand the word of God or the power of God. The Sadducees did a, uh, a theoretical with Jesus and said, what if somebody had been married seven times? And then everybody's up in heaven, whose wife will be his? Which woman will be his wife? And Jesus said, you don't understand the power of God or the word of God because in marriage there is no heaven, uh, a marriage. I, I'm sorry, I'm, let me back up. In heaven, there is no marriage. But we are like the angels of God, Jesus said. So there's, there's no union that is marital in heaven. I believe we will recognize people. The Bible insinuates that because the disciples and Jesus, but particularly the disciples, recognized Moses and Elijah in the Mount of Transfiguration. I believe we'll recognize one another, but there will be no marriage. All marriages is dissolved. Okay. Hey, Pastor, um, uh, adding on to that, it was a question I was going to have uh, for you, is that uh, it's said in Revelation, when we get to heaven, there is no sickness, there's no sadness, there's right. no sorrow. However, what do you think about our memories? Because we'll know people who were there. That's clear in the Bible. But what I'm confused about or concerned with is, 
Will we remember those who were here that don't make it? Will we remember in heaven those that didn't make it? Right. I don't believe so because either in heaven, in our totally transformed selves, we won't be able to hurt with heartbreak or the knowledge of things that could break our hearts will not be allowed to get to us. Because the book says there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more heartache, no more headaches, no more cancer, no more heart disease, nothing. There's nothing. So I don't believe whichever way it happens, either it doesn't get to us or we don't have the capacity to hurt. But I don't believe we'll be sitting around going, oh, no, um, you know, Joe next door didn't make it. And weeping in heaven over, over that. No. It's a place of joy. Uninterrupted bliss. Okay? That's it. Okay, right over here. Okay, so my question actually comes from Exodus. Uh, up when Moses has been given the command to go to Egypt, he and his brother Aaron, uh, they all travel. And it says afterwards that God met Moses right. and he attacked him or sort of like started to wrestle with him up until the moment that Zipporah took a blade that she made from a stone right. to be able to cut the foreskin off of Gershom and then threw it at his feet. Right. And then God stopped attacking. What exactly what's it was the because he was the not he was not obeying the Abrahamic covenant. His son had not been circumcised, which in the Old Testament was a law. And because that had not happened, God met him in the way. And essentially, it was like God was saying to him, I want to use you mightily, but before I can do that, you got to get totally right. And that's going to require you doing what I've told the Jewish people, my people, my chosen people, to do regarding their sons. So once that was done, he was, he was good to go. Is that it? That's all right. One more. Why in the world did God wrestle Jacob? I believe, and I love that story, the, he wrestled with Jacob, and that was a Christophany, meaning I believe that was Christ himself. A Christophany is when Jesus appears in the Old Testament prior to being incarnated via Mary. So... He met him and wrestled with him, pulled his hip out of joint, so that it says the rest of the time uh, of Jacob's life, he limped. Jacob was known for being very self-reliant. He was, he was a con man, if I can just say it, he was. He was a con man. He who conned his daddy got conned by his father-in-law. Uh, it's an amazing story of what you sow, you reap, but... In the wrestling match, he was expressing persevering faith. I think it's a picture of prayer, persevering prayer, because he wrestled with him, knowing that Esau was coming his way. And he was terrified of Esau, because he hadn't seen Esau in years, 15 years, something like that. And so he needed God's protection, God's, God's blessing, God's help. And so wrestling with the angel is a picture of intercessory prayer, persevering in prayer, and then emerging from it, reliant on God. He could no longer walk 
without a limp. And that's a picture of, of learning to lean. It's a picture of reliance on another. Not being fully self-reliant anymore. Um, I like to say this. I don't trust anybody that doesn't walk with a limp. Seriously, I get that from Jacob's story. Because if you have wrestled with God and you have ceased being self-reliant and you are now a submitted child of God and, and, and you know you need him every step of the way and you're not a con and you're not a, you're not a, a shyster, you're not a scammer, um, you are truly broken before God, then I trust you. But as long as you've got it all going on, and, 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 and you're, you're inclined to use people, take advantage of people, con people, uh, try to extract from people things that maybe they wouldn't normally give to you. You're like Jacob. Man, I don't trust you. I love you, but I don't trust you. So one of the first things I look for with anybody I get close to in my inner circle is, are you broken before God? Because then I can trust you. So here comes Esau, and Jacob comes limping up to him. Not Mr. Self-Reliant Con Man, but Mr. God changed my name. I'm no longer Jacob the trickster, but I'm Israel, a prince with God. Amen? All right, let's stand together. Boy, I like those questions. We ought to have one night where it's just nothing but questions. Amen? Amen? Now, don't forget next week, I'm going to talk to you about your Bible versions. I'm going to tell you if the one you've got is bad or good. <laughs> Amen? And we're going to get into some deep stuff next week. I mean, I'm telling you, you're not going to get this in most churches in this city. Uh-uh. I'm going deep next week. Amen? All right. Let's thank God. Lord, we just thank you right now. For the goodness of God, can we just lift holy hands? To the God who is just, the God who is fair, the God who is long-suffering, the God who is merciful, the God who gives us all, gives us time to repent, to get right. Lord, we just worship you and thank you and bless you. And hallelujah, God, you reign. And hallelujah. God, you reign. And hallelujah, God, you reign. Forever all my days, hallelujah. Lifting holy hands, let's sing it one more time. Hallelujah. And hallelujah, God, you reign. And hallelujah, God, you reign, and hallelujah, God, you reign, forever all my days, hallelujah. Give him a hand of praise tonight, amen.